Good morning, and welcome to this time of our service together. We're glad for your presence, and uh, we greet you in Jesus' name. So, uh, if things would be on schedule, Delvin would be preaching this morning, but uh, things are seldom on schedule, it seems. It seems like every time we plan these preaching schedules, why it doesn't suit somebody for some reason, so things start to get twisted around, and so you'll have... You know, a run of somebody for a while, and then he's quiet for a while, and and so it's kind of the way it works out. So that's why I'm here speaking to you rather than Delvin this morning. But when we when we first made our schedule, I saw that I was going to be on for next Sunday, and I don't know if by chance any of you happen to know what next Sunday is. It's not a, a much celebrated holiday or anything, but um, on our church calendar it says it's Grandparents' Day. And so my mind had been kind of running along those lines that, you know, well, after all, that does somewhat describe me here um, these days. Um, and uh, quite a number of you have entered that realm um, in the last year or two. And uh, so it's um, it somewhat is a marker of the of the passage of time, I guess, and the fact that old age is creeping up on all of us. Um, so it causes one to reflect. I, I'm one of those very fortunate people that uh, knew all of my grandparents quite well. And um, and uh, I knew four out of my six great-grandparents. Am I saying that right? No, it would have been six out of the eight. Yeah, let's get that right. So I know three. I knew three-quarters of them. And, uh, you know, I, I, and so therefore I remember actually of those six, I, I would have been to all of their funerals. I remember that. And I remember thinking, well, that makes sense that old people die. And then that happened. And then all of our grandparents are now passed away. And all of our parents are officially in their seventies now. And so that only leaves, um, one generation be between I guess, you know, how do you put that? Between me and the grave, I guess, you know, possibly anyway. You know, it's just things you think about. And um, so, I don't know, as I, uh, as I have pondered this, kind of thought about this the last several weeks, um, I've been interested in the last while it, it, it has become more of a hobby of mine than, than it has been in the past, to be observant of people that are 10, 15, 20, 25 years older than I, and just see how they're aging. Are they aging well? Is, uh, is the, how's things going for them? Um, you know, um, I will admit there have been times that I have commented to Darla, you know, when I'm old, I don't want to be like that. And there's been times I've said, when I'm old, I hope I'm like that person. And I'll stop right there. Um, You know, but you just know what it's like when you're around an old person that's older. I'm not sure when you become old. I'm not sure. That that I haven't completely decided yet. But, uh, you know, if, if a person is, you know, unengaged, he's discontented, he's unhappy, somewhat given to complaining... And this, this, this applies to younger people too, doesn't it? Um, you know, that's a drain on you. That's, that's, um, 
that doesn't do much for inspiration. But when you find somebody that's the opposite, you can pull energy from that person. And especially, I find it, if that person is, is older and you find that they're contented, they're, you know, they would have things they could complain about. You know, their bones are hurting today or whatever. And, uh, but they just choose not to do that. They just to choose to be happy and contented and engaged and inspirational. That's a, that's a pleasure. That, that is a, a, a very much of a pleasure. And when I think of oldsters, my mind can rarely do that without thinking of two great, great aunts that I knew. And yes, that was great greats. Um, they were my great grandfather's sisters. And uh, these two ladies never married, and they lived together there in, in the Hagerstown area. And they lived to be a ripe old age. They, uh, the one died at 105 and the other at 101. And they were just some of the most pleasant people to be around that I ever knew. And not that I don't know a lot of pleasant people, but they just were. They were just, they, and I remember going to their house and visiting them occasionally. And, and they just had this, um, um, this demeanor, this, this way of, of relating to people. And they were just genuinely glad to see you. You, you didn't have to wonder whether Anne, Edith, and Aunt Bertha cared you were there that day. They, they really liked to be around people and, and they were people that you could indeed draw energy from. And I want to be g- gentle and, and considerate of people that were less than that that I knew in, in my time. You know, it, it could be that, um, that um, the difficulties in life and so on somewhat shaped their, you know, unhappiness or, or whatever. But um, I would like to think that we have a big choice in how we age and how we um, how we slide into that that time that those sunset years as you will and uh, and still be people that even though we maybe are receivers of a lot of of um, benefits from younger people we still can be Something that is exuding energy and the grace of God to the younger generation and to those around us. And I don't think that will happen if we set our, our, our uh, sails in the winds of unhappiness and bitterness and suspicion and the victim mentality and all those things in our younger years. And so this message is from everybody that, that, that that can understand me here this morning and make sense of what I'm saying, if that means you're six years old and you can understand what I'm saying, this message is for you this morning. And if you're uh, honing in on 70 or 80, it's for you too. Because I, I'm, I still think that even though we get entrenched pretty deep in our ways, I think by the grace of God, if he speaks to us, um, we can, we can you know, change our ways. I think God's grace is big enough for that. To start us out, let's turn to uh, Ecclesiastes 12. We're going to read two two different passages here in the outstart, and then we're going to we're going to uh, I have five things this morning that I think uh, could be helpful for us as we look at this thing of aging. Very familiar passage here. I'm just going to start at verse. Well, we're going to start at, at verse nine of chapter 11. It goes like this. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou 
that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. I'm just going to stop there for a second. You know, it's interesting here that that what we assume is Solomon writing this. Um, he says, you know, in your youth, you young people here this morning, you it's okay if you if you rejoice in that youth because you know youth is times when dreams are big, responsibilities are limited, and energy and opportunity abounds. And those are good days. There's nothing wrong with that. All of us at some point have been there or are currently there. And until you pass through that and get somewhere on the other side of that, you don't realize how much how much it was like it was, right? You kind of need context to really understand that. But he's saying, you know, rejoice, live your life to the fullness, but uh, remember, just remember, as you're doing that, that that God is still going to hold you accountable for what you do. So you got to you got to be careful that you don't do something in your youth that you're going to, that's going to haunt you the rest of your your life. So just be careful. God will bring you into judgment for that. All right, now let's 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 move on. He goes then in chapter 12, and this is actually all one paragraph. The paragraph starts at verse 9, and we just move on through here. I'm not sure why the break is, uh, is um, why the writers broke it here at uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, but they did. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. All right, so because um, youth can be this, this time of maybe happy-go-lucky, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't forget that. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. So, remember, he calls them evil days. In other words, he's saying, this, you won't always be this, this youthful. Remember that. Alright? And there, there are evil days, quote, quote, or bad days, or adverse days, or days of calamity that are, that are going to come. And so then he describes these days in the verses ensuing. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. In the days when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders shall cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened. And the door shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low, and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. I'm not going to belabor these verses real long, but, but you know, these verses are a very pragmatic, objective description of old age. You know, strength fails, the teeth fall out, the eyesight gets dim. You lose your hearing, you don't sleep very well, the grasshopper is a burden, and your hair turns gray. And... Uh, all of us probably that are north of 45 have probably experienced a little bit of that to some degree. It's not fair to some of us because 
My family reminds me now and again how my hair is turning gray, and my wife tells me it looks grayer when I'm in the pulpit. And I think it has something to do with the lighting. So my hair is not as gray as it appears, all right? So just uh, just remember that. But the almond tree is flourishing, all right? At least for me anyway. I was interested. I did a little Googling on this matter of aging. And I don't know. Statistics are what they are. And you can take it with a grain of salt, like they say. But I was interested that people that study these things say that speaking statistically, people 33 and younger tend to thrive and move on dreams, ambition, and they're motivated. They got motivation. And um, I, I, you know, like Hoover would say, you know, the world is your oyster. That's, that's the way he would put it. And, and I know a little bit what that means. I, I have commented different times in the last 10 or 15 years that as I look back at what Darla and I did when our, in our early 20s, p- picking up and moving out here to Minnesota and doing what we did, I think there was, I always put it like this, there had to be a, a measure of naivety and way more ambition than I have today. I just don't think, I, I know I couldn't. I would not do what I did when I was 23 today at 50. I wouldn't do it because I know I don't have the stamina that I that I had or thought I had back then. But anyway, back to the statistics. Once you reach the age 35, apparently, on average, employees employees discontinue seeking promotion and extra responsibility. So what you are by the time you're 35 uh, pretty much sets the uh, sets the trajectory, I guess. But that's just um, that's just some observation. And as you grow older, these uh, these people were saying that older people tend to draw more and more inspiration and and um, uh, I don't know the word I use, but we'll use the word inspiration on lived experience. And that's the way oldsters are. Uh, you know, you get around old people; they like to talk about old times because they're, they they derive their satisfaction on what has happened rather on what they will make happen, all right? Because when you're 80, you're not going to move to Minnesota and buy a farm. You're not, you're not going to do that. You're, uh, you're thinking about um, maybe buying a headstone at that point. So, you know, this is a description of, of getting old. And if we'd stop there, um, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a bleak picture, I guess. You know, we just, if that's all there was, it would be somewhat bleak. But let's not stop there. Let's turn to Psalm 92 now. And let's just read this passage because I think this is a little bit more inspirational than Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to read the whole psalm here, Psalm 92. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. To show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night, upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery, upon the harp with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, has made me glad through thy works. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. All right, so let's just stop there. This, this is a segment of the psalm where the psalmist, we assume it is David, he just he just goes on about how good the Lord is, how great the Lord is, and how much the Lord has done, and how much he's going to pursue worshiping in the Lord. 
And he's going to do this night. He's going to do it at, at, during the day. He's going to do it when he wakes up, when he goes to sleep. And he says, I owe the Lord my gratitude for all these, these wonderful things. Well, now let's keep on reading. A brutish man, or in other words, a wicked person, something opposite of righteous, knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. They don't understand how good the Lord is. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. So even though the wicked are growing, even though they're flourishing, it'll be destroyed because that's all the wicked have is what's right here and now. But thou, Lord, art most high forever. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish, and all the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shall, shall thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eyes also shall see my desire on mine enemies, and my ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against thee. Now the last few verses here is where I'd like to just hone in on. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Well, let's just talk about that a little bit. How does the righteous flourish like a palm tree? Well, we don't really have palm trees in this part of the world. But a palm tree, as you probably know, is a tree that is very good at weathering storms. And, and you've heard this before, you know, when, when uh, the derechos and the monsoons and the, all these wild storms hit the coast, and there's palm trees there, they just bend. They just bend in the storm. And then when a the storm is over, they come back up again, and a palm tree, palm tree is still there. They're known for their durability and their, their ability to flex in storms and withstand these, these strong winds and so on. A palm tree is also something that we derive um, different food from. Um, the acacia fruit grows on a palm tree. We, grow, we get dates from palm trees. We get some kind of nuts, and we also get oil. And if you would look at different things in your house, you would probably see that, that uh, this thing uh, has palm oil in it. That's not uncommon. So there's a lot of things we use like that, and they're a relatively long-lived tree. All right. So in the Bible, palm trees. If you would, if you would just kind of scan through your, your your Bible, you would find that palm trees are often a symbol of peace and prosperity, and just uh, just uh, a lovely sort of a tree. You know, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, palm palm branches were were what was scattered in his way and also waved. All right. What about a cedar of Lebanon? A little different, but much the same. They were known for their luxury, wealth, strength, resistance. Um, apparently, the the area called Lebanon in the, in Bible times had a lot of big, solid cedars, and um, and if you wanted to build a Taj Mahal, you used the cedars of Lebanon, and you know that's what. I believe David's house had some of that in. Solomon's did. The temple was full of the cedars of Lebanon. Often wonder what this temple must have smelt like because cedar has quite a smell. It must have been quite a smell to go to the temple, I suppose. But the cedars of Lebanon were known for um, for their for these attributes. So strength and beauty. So what what David is saying here is that the righteous should be should be flexible enough to weather the storms, and they should be as strong and beautiful as the cedars of Lebanon. All right? Now let's just move on. They shall be planted in the house of the those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of the Lord. So 
that that verse is easy to understand. You want to flourish? Plant yourself in the house of the Lord. Um, we're glad you're here this morning. That probably is a, is a, um, is a, at least gives us some idea that you wish to flourish anyway. And beyond that, since the uh, temple of the Holy Spirit is within us, and if you're a Christian here this morning, you should really be flourishing because you should be planted right where you should be planted. All right, now, verse 14 is the one I really want you to look at. These people, these righteous people, they shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. That's the shocking part. A righteous person, even as he grows old, right till the day before he dies, um, he's still bringing forth fruit. He, he has fruit to contribute to society because he has lived a righteous life. He has made God number one in his life. He just can't be worn out. And so the title of my message this morning is A Fat and Flourishing Finish. I think uh, those three words should stick with you, and you can use them however you want. I think it gives me... Um, it gives me at least somewhat of a right that maybe that applies physically too. A little weight is maybe okay in old age. Um, not sure. We'll let that up to uh, to uh, each of us to figure that out. But anyway, that's not what we're going to look at this morning. The um, the NIV calls it a f- they will stay fresh and green, and I like that terminology as well. So what can we learn, or what can we look at here as we grow old? How, as we are as we are winding down this passage of time, this passage through the reality of time, how can we be fresh and green, fat and flourishing as we as we uh, uh, enter into the stage called old age? All right. So five things. Number one, I think a good old age starts with proper habits and choices long before old age. You know, it's no secret that habits and choices developed and fed in our early days are highly unlikely to change as we get older. In fact, it seems like it only exacerbates as we get older. In the book of Job, there's different verses that, that talk about old age and so on. And Job had some friends that spoke very objectively to this particular, uh, this particular thing. And in Job 20, Job's friend by the name of Zophar, he had this to say, and this is generally true. He's speaking of the wicked person, and he says, His bones are full of the sins of his youth, which shall lie down with him in the dust. And basically what Zophar said there is true. Uh, A wicked person, he will set very, very bad habits and lifestyle choices early in life, and generally speaking, those things are very difficult to break as one gets older. It, the, the old adage that as the tree falls, so it will lie, or however that goes, that's true. Um, it's pretty hard. You know, whenever you chop down a big old oak tree or whatever tree, you pick out the spot you want it to go, and then you, you start to chop. Well, let's say you made the notch on this side, and you started chopping here, and that thing's really starting to get inclined to go that way, and suddenly you decide... Oh no, I want it to go that way. 
you got a job on your hands, a big job on your hands. You might get it done, but it's going to be a lot more work, especially if it's starting to tilt. And, and that principle applies very much in a lot of other areas, and this is one of them. There's been pretty, pretty many people that have chosen to sow to the wind in their youth and have reaped a consequential harvest because of that. It has haunted them to the day they died. But the opposite is equally true. We form good habits, make good choices early in life, and that will generate a meaningful harvest late in life. And that's exactly why the Ecclesiastes writer says, remember, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember that. And that's something we just should remember. Number two, a fresh and green old age means that the walk with the Lord and the related issues will not wane with age. Jesus said in a different context, but I think it does apply here, and we can use it without doing injustice to what Jesus said. He said that the person that endures to the end shall be saved. Now, we have some, we have some examples of this in the Bible, don't we? Uh, one of the most prime examples of a person that didn't do so well is the man Solomon. Had a wonderful start. And we understand that. We understand all the things Solomon did and all the things he was blessed with and so on. But the commentary of, his, of him late in life is um, less than ideal. First Kings 11.4 says, For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. That's, that's, that is the commentary of the old age of Solomon. Now turn with me to Ezekiel 8. This is a, is a, a passage that is rarely read or commented on. The book of Ezekiel in general is, is full of visions and uh, illusions and, and um, things that are hard to understand. And I'm not going to say I understand this completely, but... I do remember reading over this passage for the first time a number of years ago, and it was somewhat of a shocking passage, and I'm going to read it to you right now. Ezekiel 8, verse 7. This is, this is a, a vision that Ezekiel had, and if you'd read earlier in the chapter, you would see that the Lord picked Ezekiel up by his hair, it says, and he took him over there to Jerusalem to show him the things that were happening in Jerusalem, and here's what he saw. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the hole. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw. And behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. Now, verse 11 here, notice verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in his chamber of his imagery, for they say, The Lord saith us not. And the Lord has forsaken the earth. And we're just going to stop there. But the point I want to make is, this is a scene of what is called abomination. Okay? 
And it's a scene of these old men, the ancients of the house of Israel, old men, men that should have known better, men that should have been an example. And what were they doing? They were standing in here in a house of idols and abominable beasts, and they had censers in their hand, which means they were worshiping these things. The, the point that I don't know if, if, if God was trying to make here, but a point I think can be extracted from this passage is, if this is what the old men were doing, would there be any hope for the younger? I mean, just think about it. These are the ancients. These are the people that should have known much better. When the old do not walk with integrity, how will the young ever find their way? That's a question we need to ask. Now turn with me to Luke 2. We can't stop there. There's got to be some better examples than that, right? And Luke 2 contains two of those. And I think you probably know already who these people will be. Luke 2 and verse uh, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were seen of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many of Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanael, of the tribe of Asher, and she was of great age, and had lived with an husband seventy years from her virginity. And she was a widow of fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. We don't have much on these people, but I can tell you this. Nobody can read this passage and get the idea that Simeon and Anna here were sketchy people. They were not people of sketchy character. These people were well ripened in their old age and they were still flourishing and bringing forth fruit in their old days. I'll also just refer quickly to Timothy. Paul tells Timothy that he had a mother and a grandmother that had been a very godly example to him. And in, in 2 Timothy 3.14, he tells Timothy, he said, remember... He said, remember the things that you have learned, knowing of whom you have learned them. He said, you had a godly mother and grandmother. And they, good, they did good things for you, and they taught you good things. Just remember that. I am very thankful for people that I know that are faithfully following God in their elderly years. I am very thankful for that. And I know, I know many of these people. But I can't say that I don't also know people that it seems like in their older years that you see a cooling off and, and something else happening. You know, Titus 2 says that Paul told Titus that he should preach the things which become sound doctrine. 
Now, if you're going to preach something that becomes sound doctrine, it means it's going to spur on sound doctrine. And one of the things that he specifically tells Titus he should preach is that the old men should be sound in the faith. All right? So that tells me that way back there even, they were having a little trouble with the old men being sound in the faith. You know, I really think that that in a in a in a perfect godly world, and we don't live there completely, but I think for godly old folks, there should be a measure of stability, predictability, wisdom, godly example, etc. And I think it's such a disservice to the younger generation when, like in Ezekiel 8 here, the older people begin to act downright childish, begin to act like teenagers, begin to do things that you're like, you know what, I would expect that of a teenager, but I'm really disappointed to see a 60-year-old doing that. That That's just, there's something wrong with that. Um, you know, there, there are things, and I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but there are just things that we know are just not not very proper, okay? But every once in a while, you'll get an immature Christian that will engage in these questionable, somewhat improper things. And we say, well, hopefully they'll mature out of that. Hopefully that will happen. I'm not sure what we're supposed to say when the oldsters begin to act like that. Are they going to mature out of it too? Like, at what point do you mature? And if that's the kind of example that oldsters are going to set for the youngsters... I mean, woe be to us. We need something more than that. And I want to encourage us as we age to be those markers of predictability and stability and wisdom. Um, I just think that's such a, such a tragedy when it's otherwise. And I want to certainly, by God's grace, emulate the example of older people that I know that serve the Lord well. Faithfully, their presence is in church life. They contribute to the work of the Lord, and their lives exude virtues of humility, submission, and carefulness. Number three, old age provides an opportunity and responsibility to share wisdom and lessons of life with the rising generation, and the younger an opportunity to respect and imbibe that wisdom and experience. Now, that's a long point there. But basically what I'm saying is, as a rule of thumb again, old age should equate wisdom. It it should. And I could read you verses. I'll read one out of Job here again. With the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days is understanding. That's That generally is the way it should work. There's a reason in Leviticus 19 that God says, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man, And what? And fear thy God, I am the Lord. He connects the the respect to the older people to fearing the Lord. And there's a reason again. Because a godly old person should really have some some spiritual wisdom that he can contribute to to the rising generation. Titus 2 again, the older women are instructed to teach the younger. And again, that's because there is an assumed wisdom on the, on the, on the part of older. Now, I do want to have, there's one caveat here. Solomon says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what that means is you can be young and wise. And that's why David said in Psalms that he is wiser than his teachers. 
because the Lord was with David to a degree, and and apparently he maybe had some some teachers that were less than ideal. We don't know that, but he said, "I'm wiser than my teachers," and he could say that because he the Lord was with him. See, and and we can too. If, if we're young and we are applying the principles of God's word, we're wise people, no matter what our age is. However, if you were an old person and you are, you have been applying the word of God to your life for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever that may be, that godly wisdom is tempered and perfected by experience and, ex- and extended observation. And that wisdom becomes more valuable. It's sort of like cheese. We make some green cheese at home every once in a while, and green cheese is good. But it gets much, much, much better as it ages. And there is a there is actually a way of aging cheese that you kind of gotta gotta know how to do it, alright? But if you know how to do it and you get it you get it done right, your aged cheese is gonna be better than your green cheese. And much the same with wisdom. If you want a uh, a good example of somebody that did not value the old men's wisdom looked no further than Rehoboam. We know that. He called in the old man. He called in the young man. He said, here's my deal. Give me your advice. And for whatever reason, he neglected the old man. He went with the young man, and it was to his ruin. And, and you know that. You know, in that case, the younger did not value the good advice of the old. And that's 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 unfortunate. And so I want to I want to I want to encourage us as younger people, and I'll let you decide if you're young today or not. That's your decision. But listen to the advice of the old. They 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 have something to share with us. But also I want to encourage the older folks, and you can decide if you're older here today or not. Somehow that's that wisdom has to be passed along. And. Um, if, if the older sense that the younger don't appreciate that wisdom, or if the exercise is simply overlooked, there's going to end up being some sort of a gap in the generations, and, and that wisdom will not be carried on as it should be. Deuteronomy 32, Moses tells the young people, he says, Remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations. And here's what he said. He said, ask your father, and he will show thee thy elders, and they will tell thee. So what he's saying is, part of that onus lays on us younger people. You want to know? You want to know? Ask. Ask some questions. That's a good exercise. You know, I think, looking at history, for reasons... That I'm not sure I'm, I'm, um, prepared to explain. There seems to be too much wisdom at times that is lost between generations. And because that happens, there is a tendency for history to constantly repeat itself. That's why history repeats itself. Somehow or the other, the things that didn't work a hundred years ago, somehow that story got lost. And so the rising generation says, huh, Let's try this. Never knowing that a hundred years ago they tried that and it didn't work. And so we'll just try it again. And thus it doesn't work again. But what, but that repeat of the process is bound to bring tragedy. And so we learn it again. One more time, we learn it by experience. And we set the sails right again. 
And then 100 years later, we forget. So we got to repeat it again. And, and that's too bad. It's too bad it is that way. It doesn't have to be that way. We do live in somewhat of an odd time today, as I have thought about it, where with the advent of technology, and that's a broad term, and I know you get it's a, it's a worn-out term, and I don't even like to use it, but it is what it is. It's where we're at. I'm not techie. You know that. I've confessed that many times to you. And I know there's other ones of you here that have confessed that. Uh, it, it doesn't interest me, and I'm not interested. I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I get, I get all thumbs pretty quick with, um, with uh, these types of things. But it's hard to find a youngster that isn't techie. All right? That's just the way it is in our world. And because of this weirdness of the times we live in, it, it starts to register in our mind that, you know, the young are actually smarter than we are. That's not true. That never will be true. A, a godly old person is always going to be smarter than the techiest young person. That's just, it's always going to be that way. Now, we can, we can, we can use each other intergenerationally here, but, but I fear that this thing is getting a little twisted up in our minds, and I don't want it to be. There's a difference between being smart and being wise. And I just want us to keep those two things straight. But there's another caution I need to throw out here. It is the duty of every generation to explore what is handed to them and to match it up with eternal values. And I'll, just, and I'll leave that there. Um, you know, all these things have a little bit of a check and a balance. We're talking in generalities here this morning that in general... A godly old person should have a lot to offer the younger. But the younger should always be like the Brians. They should always take the word of God and say, is what I'm being handed, is that, is that truly the word of God? Is that truly what God, God is asking of, of, of me and of us? <clears throat> In summary, I think a satisfying old age will be experienced when life that has been lived well and has experienced God's goodness is passed on in some kind of a story to the next generation. And I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. Number four, old age is best experienced when selflessness prevails and the satisfaction of living simply and unselfishly prevails to the end. You know, folks, we all battle selfishness. It is an attitude that will stick with us from cradle to grave. We're going to have to deal with it. We are born selfish. We are born with an attitude that we want to be served. I mean... I know when a baby cries, he's hungry, and that's the only way he can get the point across that he's hungry. However, it is motivated by selfishness, all right? That's why we have to work on these things with our, with our children. We're, we're selfish. And that thing can, 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 can follow us around. We can get older and we say, you know what? I've worked hard. I deserve this. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to live it up. Now, you couple that with the reality that we in America tend to have a, an ability to have a pretty comfortable retirement financially. We do. At this stage in the game, we do. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I believe I have seen an uptick in what I would call old age indulgence. I just believe I, I have seen that. And once again, if you go back to Titus 2, one of the things that becomes sound doctrine is that the old men are temperate. They're temperate. Even though they're old and rich, they live temperately. 
I don't know, but I personally struggle to understand how living it up in retirement years squares with the call of temperance. How can a life of indulgence be justified just because somebody has reached a certain age? And I just want us to think about that. I don't want to get into the weeds of specifics. I want the Spirit of God to speak to each one of us. But I just fear that the the, the amount of time and money that is spent in our communities on amusement and recreation and pleasure with by both young and old is not really a very good example of godliness that God would desire of his people. You know, the song we sang this morning, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? While others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Now, I know we don't pick these things. We have not picked to live in America versus China. I get that. I understand that. But my point is, our test is not burning at the stake. Our test is burning at the stake of materialism and wealth and prosperity and amusement and pleasure and whooping it up. That is where we're at. Somehow, it seems like we've lost the ability to think soberly on these matters. And all you got to do is read the, the book of Ecclesiastes to, to find that out. That man tried everything. If he'd have wrote the book of Ecclesiastes today, the wording would be a little different. He'd say, I tried everything. I went to the amusement parks. I went to the mountains. I went here. I went there. I, fought, I went to the, an abandoned island. I was on the Caribbean cruises. I did all that stuff, and none of it brought me any satisfaction. It's, it, would be, it would be worded a little different, but the, but the end would be the same. All I'm saying is, folks, this haunts all of us. But we need old people that can live satisfied, contented, godly, temperate lives. To give an example to those of us that are following on. Lastly, number five. A flourishing old age is experienced when we allow the rising generation to bear the yoke and extend their encouragement and allow them to take the lead roles. And that so much fits into our Sunday school lesson this morning. I didn't realize how much that was going to fit together. But, you know, I think as we age, we can be particularly given to cynicism. And all cynicism is, is to be distrustful and question motives. That's what cynicism is. Titus 2, referring back to Titus 2, the things that become sound doctrine, it says that the old men should be long in charity and patience. Okay? Now, the transition of roles from one generation to the next can be a struggle at times. We understand that. And I have had the the unlikely experience of, um, because of my jobs through the years, first as a DHIA tester in the in the 80s, in early 90s, and now as a, as a seed salesman in the, this part of my life, to some degree, I get to work closely with, with farmers that have several generations on the farm. And it has been interesting to me to observe that. There are some farmers that do not have the ability to let go of the ropes and let the younger people take over. I can think of one instance right now. The man is in his, deep into his 80s, he can barely walk. He really should be in a nursing home. His son is my age, to the, almost to the day. And that son is still a little boy. That son does not make any choices about what's getting planted. 
He makes no choices about anything. He's the little boy holding daddy's hand yet. And I just say, what is wrong? Something is wrong here. Somebody, this transition did not go well. But then I've observed transitions that have gone very well. The, the, the father has let loose of the reins uh, somewhat early on, and the, the sons have slid into that nicely, and, and that transition has gone very well. And that applies to other things. Um, I've seen rocky times. I, a fellow bishop just, sir, just, just shared with me in the recent past of how this transition that he's in from the older to the young is a little rocky because of this very thing, that transition just is, is not going the way it should. You know, it's a tenuous exercise to make these transitions, and it does require trust on the part of the old and a willingness on the young to carefully assume responsibility. Both must be in place. Turn with me to Psalm 90 real quick in closing. You know, Curtis made the, uh, the observation when he was up here that, that the, the man Joshua is not really a man that we know of making a lot of mistakes. And that's true. But I think he made one mistake. That's just my opinion. <clears throat> Moses was extremely interested that there was somebody came behind him. And he talked to God about this. And God said, you take Joshua, the son of Nun, and you lay hands on him, and you transition this thing. And he did that. And that transition worked out very well. Joshua, for some reason, I don't know why, did not have that foresight. He did not establish a leader to come after him. And what does the book of Judges give you? Read the last three chapters of the book of Judges, and it is nothing but chaos and confusion. And it says specifically it's because there was no king in Israel. Now, in verse um, verse um, 8, we'll start there. No, let's, let's, let's start at verse 9. Now, now, this psalm is a psalm of Moses. That's what makes this interesting. When you read it, knowing that Moses is the author, it's, it's, it makes more sense. So Moses says in verse 9, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. And Moses had seen plenty of God's wrath in his time leading those people. He says, the days of our years are threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now think about this is Moses. He lived to be 120, and it said that his eyes never got dim, and his strength never abated. He just died because it was time, okay? Not because anything was wrong with him. But he said, even that, he said, even with all my, my strength, and he said, it's all labor and sorrow. And he said, even at 120 years, I'm soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So, in summary, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And I personally think that's a good verse to conclude on. No matter your age here today, apply your, apply your heart to wisdom. Number your days. Understand that this little thing called time is very fleeting, and we have an opportunity to make the absolute best of it, or we can just grow old and grow bitter and fade away. And it's our choice.